The passage is Exodus chapter 20. So let's turn there as we move through the Ten Commandments. Verse by verse, going through the book of Exodus, we're in chapter 20. And we are going to pick up the text in verse 14. Once you've got it located, would you stand to your feet? Uh, be prepared to sit back down because it'll be a, it's a quick single verse. But it is, it is longer than last week. I think I have one more word to share with you. <laughs> All right, y'all ready? Exodus 20, verse 14. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. You may be seated. As I think about our world and what is happening in our world, it, is, uh, it seems like we've gone crazy, to be quite candid with you. And uh, I, I'm going to share some things with you up front that don't specifically relate to adultery in a heterosexual marriage, but we're going to get there. But I, I have some opening comments because they are germane and important uh, to the subject matter. And let me start with a law passed a week ago in Canada. This is a letter from an elder in a church in Canada to John MacArthur. Bill C-4 passed through the House in Canada and the Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the Conservative Party. It received royal assent on December 8th, which means it will come into law January 8th, 2022. The bill will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It will criminalize, among other things, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy promoting or advertising conversion therapy. And I will say, just to pause for a second in my quoting of this, that there have been some weird, extreme things done with conversion therapy. And just so you know, that's someone counseling someone to go out of the homosexual lifestyle. And so there have perhaps been some abuses. I've heard anecdotal accounts of that. I don't have them confirmed firsthand. But that's the essence of conversion therapy. So someone's in a homosexual lifestyle or same-sex attracted, and basically someone's trying to counsel them how to change. That's the idea. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that heterosexuality, quoting, cisgender gender identity and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. According to the Canadian law, as of January 8, 2022, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth in Canada. The bill defines conversion therapy as, quote, a practice treatment or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, or what they were born with, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Now that's the quoting from the bill, and then he says, the definition is intentionally broad, and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality or transgenderism or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual transgender actions and lifestyle. This means as of January 8, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. By the way, with a jail sentence up to five years in prison if you are caught breaking the law. He ends this with, on January 16, 2022, faithful men across Canada and the United States will be preaching on God's design for marriage and biblical, the biblical ethic of sexuality. We will be doing so illegally in Canada, declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church and that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit. We are honored that American Brothers will be joining us on this date. That is January 16th, 2022. That is our date. 
I was approached by a few uh, church members asking me, A, if I knew about this, which I did, and B, would I be preaching on biblical sexuality? And I said, yes. And I said, and it's really easy for me because I'm going to the seventh commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. So here we are, as the Holy Spirit would have it, and I'm going to be talking to you about biblical sexuality. Before I go there, I mentioned to you in the bill transgenderism, which is a big thing. Uh, homosexuality is now the most celebrated sin in the world, uh, being pushed and normalized across the world. I'm not here to offend anybody. I know sometimes people who have proclivities in this direction or sensitivities to this issue think that pastors pick on this issue. We're not really picking on this issue. What's happening is our whole world is moving towards celebrating this as normal. It's pushed everywhere, not to mention the fact that transgenderism is now being normalized. Let me just give you a quick example of what's happening in our world. Right now, males who, are, who, who were born males with the male strength and differences from women are now competing in female sports. They are crushing and breaking records. They are winning state championships when they would have been in the middle of the pack as a male competitor. They are now breaking records winning state championships, winning collegiate championships, and robbing women and young ladies of scholarships because they are advanced as males and just stronger, and that's just the way God made us and designed us. Uh, some of you have seen the video, perhaps on YouTube, where the swimmer who identifies as a female but he's a male is two laps ahead of all the females in the pool. I mean, it has gotten to the point where it is so ridiculous that California law hypothetically allows for a man to compete in the 100 meters in the morning at a track meet, then in the afternoon compete in the 200 meters, that same guy identifying now as a female in the same day. And at some point, somebody has to say, the emperor has no clothes. I mean, we have gotten to a point where it has just become really ridiculous. Now, here's where I think we need to speak, obviously, truth with compassion. Uh, everyone that I have heard of who's come out of a homosexual lifestyle or out of transgenderism, and I will tell you that you're not hearing these stories, but people who, who change their sex and even go through a surgery, many of them have regrets and try to convert back to their original gender. You don't hear those stories, but it, we're at an epidemic where some have, have actually gone through a surgery where they now have changed their body physically and can't undo it and then have a change of mind. I mean, we have young kids now who are being pushed to go through these processes before they've even, you know, their brain is, is wired the right way. And now some of them go through surgical processes that cannot be undone. We have really gone mad in these areas. I mean, this, it's just bizarre stuff. Now, I will tell you, there are two people that you might want to look up in terms of coming out of the homosexual lifestyle, and they are two representative people of many. One of them's named Rosaria Butterfield. She's written at least three books. She was a former Syracuse University English professor. She was in a, a lesbian relationship. She had all lesbian friends, very politically active, she said in the lesbian lifestyle, what happens is that they, they tend to be more monogamous and they're very friendship-oriented and very politically active. She ran into a pastor and his wife who loved her, spoke truth to her, showed her what Christians were all about up front, you know, right up, right up in front of her, showed her the love of Christ, and she was converted to the Christian faith. She's now married to a man. This all happened about 20-plus years ago, Rosaria Butterfield. In 2009, a man named Beckett Cook uh, came out of the homosexual lifestyle. Beckett Cook, I would encourage you to look him up. And he left that lifestyle and began to follow Jesus Christ. And he says in the homosexual lifestyle, what happens is men are more caught up in multiple partners and in drug and alcohol abuse. And he said, anyone who tells you that a homosexual male male relationship is monogamous. He says, that's just a lie and it's a fraud. And that, this is what's going on is we are robbing people of the opportunity to change by telling people you are fixed 
and a position. Now, this would include anything, whether you're addicted to pornography or you have cheated on your spouse or whatever it may be. You can change by the power of Christ. You can be forgiven by the power of Christ. And it is a great danger in the church today in mainline denominations that used to stand for truth for pastors to say to people to confirm them in their sin. Here's what I mean. If you tell someone that they're okay when biblically they're not okay, what you have done is confirm them in their sin. If someone is under the judgment of God and you tell them that they're okay and you twist the scriptures to your destruction and their destruction, you are going to answer to God. Now, let me tell you this. I have no pleasure in saying hard things to any group of people, but here is my job, to be faithful to the Word of God. So I'm going to give you the Word of God, and I'm going to tell you we're going to have some uncomfortable moments this morning and some moments where you may have wished that you didn't come to church today. And we're going to have some really good news at the end. And I'm going to talk to you about the inside-outside rules of the commandments, how they go to our heart. I'm going to talk to you about the positive side of the commandment. But first, we're going to define some terms. And before I define uh, the term adultery, there is a movement some of you have heard just to add a little ongoing craziness and levity, I, I would say, perhaps to our message. Something now being practiced called sologamy. Sologamy is where people marry themselves. Uh, so, you know, you've heard about polygamy, uh, a guy married to multiple women. You've heard about group marriage. They, there is such a thing as group marriage now where people are married. There's multiple guys and multiple girls in one marriage. There's cats and dogs and all kinds of things. Now, sologamy is marrying yourself in a formal ceremony, even with a minister a wedding dress, a ring, a party, and the whole thing. And what sologamists say is they're marrying themselves to make a covenant commitment to themselves. Do you take yourself to be married to yourself? Will you love and honor yourself all the days of your life? I will. Will you? <laughs> I'm not joking. It's going on. And the sologamists say... <laughs> They're doing this to make a commitment to love themselves for the rest of their lives in a formal ceremony. They say they're not doing this to the exclusion of the possibility of loving somebody else and even marrying somebody else. But sologamy is to marry yourself and, make, and promise to love yourself for the rest of your life. Let me just say, if you have a sologamy ceremony, you already love yourself. That's why you're having the ceremony, so everybody can know. Anyway, <laughs> that's where we are. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, 14. The word adultery in Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, remember, is na'af. If you're taking notes, it's N-A-W-A-F put into English, or you could just simply write it N-A-A-F, na'af. It means to commit adultery typically of a man with another man's wife. Figuratively, na'af means to apostatize or to depart. It can also point to spiritual idolatry, that is, worshiping other gods beside the God of the Bible. Often God would say to his people, spiritually, you've cheated on me, you've committed adultery with other gods. In the Hebrew picture language, Dr. Seekins says, if Moses would have written it, and he did, the way he would have written it right to left is, the characters would point to the action of the strong mouth, literally defined as this. It means to devour greedily what is not yours. To devour greedily what is not yours. When a person is married to a person, uh, another person in a covenant heterosexual marriage, they belong to one another in oneness. Yesterday, I had the privilege of marrying Bradley and Gina Biggie, celebrating a wonderful wedding yesterday, a great young couple in our fellowship. And I invoked the name of God as they had shared vows with one another. We sealed those vows in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they made a commitment to one another. The gospel was on display. And for the rest of their lives, they'll be working on that oneness. They'll be practicing that oneness. When adultery occurs... 
a third party gets in the middle of that oneness and has no business being there. Adultery is to go outside of your marriage covenant and to be with your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband. Notice how it is uh, sandwiched around a couple of commandments, not by accident. Don't commit murder is verse 13. And when you commit adultery, you end up hurting other people, at least in a uh, spiritual or metaphorical sense, murdering relationships, killing relationships. Often several other people are involved. It also includes the idea of stealing because you steal another person's spouse. So it connects to the next commandment, which is commandment eight. And then if you look at the final commandment, which is about coveting, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet what? Your neighbor's wife. Another mention of your neighbor's wife. Here, the idea is that the, what would be the predecessor to adultery is coveting. Coveting is to want something that someone else possesses that you're jealous of or you want it. We often think of a car or a home or something like that. But what you do in this case, this specific form of coveting is to covet another person's spouse and to go over that in your mind over and over again until you want to act upon that. Coveting is the predecessor to adultery. And so here's the idea of the language. The word Dr. Seekins uh, rounds out his definition by saying the word uh, in the picture language has the idea of enwrapping or encompassing And it's only used of death and sorrow in the Bible. And so here's the idea of adultery. In the New Testament, the Greek word is moikeia, spelled M-O-I-C-H-E-I-A, moikeia. And it includes being with another person intimately that is not your spouse. And it even includes if you're a single person and you sleep with someone who is married, that is also considered adultery. Now, when scholars look at Hebrew and Greek words, they often like to walk out implications of those words. So let me just tell you about a Greek word that many of you are familiar with. It's the Greek word pornea, where we get the English word pornography. The Greek word pornea encompasses, if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, all forms of sexual immorality. Pornea includes all forms of sexual immorality. So scholars would say that what's implicit in the idea of adultery is really any form of sexual immorality because God has given us the sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage. Fornication is premarital sex. Now, you might, uh, ha- you might look at the world and maybe you're angry about some things you know, that you see going on with the homosexual movement or whatever, but you can watch a TV show where two people sleep together and they're not married, and we can, we can almost, some of us, maybe just kind of wink at that. Or uh, what can be also celebrated is two people who end up sexually involved with one another who are not married to one another. You ever stayed home from work or school sick and turned on some of those uh, you know, shows and they play back to back to back about someone killing their spouse? You know what always is at the center of that? Another person that they want to be with and usually insurance money, and often both. This is our world, and this has been the ongoing challenge to all of us to stay true to God's commands. All forms of sex outside of marriage are a sin. They're sinful in God's eyes. You are to save yourself for your spouse, and you are to be... uh, Intimate only with that individual for the rest of your life and enjoy that relationship with one another. I'll talk about the positive case in a moment. Genesis 2.24 puts it this way. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave or be joined to his wife. The idea of the language here of cleaving has the idea of superglue. And one of the expressions of oneness is sexual intimacy. There is a spiritual oneness in marriage. There is a friendship oneness in marriage. And there is a physical oneness in marriage. And I will tell you, if you want to have a healthy relationship in your marriage, they all go together. A healthy friendship, a healthy spiritual life will also make a triangle to a healthy sexual life. A good, healthy friendship, a good, healthy spiritual life 
will go hand in hand with a good, healthy sexual intimacy in your relationship. It is the self-giving of one another, and God teaches it from the very beginning. Before there was ever a formal church, before there was ever government, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And then God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, just to give you an example of how things have been weird over the centuries, throughout church history, many church fathers that you would know their names had very strange views about sex within marriage. Some early church fathers taught that sexual intimacy in marriage is only for procreation. That is, only to have children. That is false. There are other church fathers who basically read Jesus' words in Matthew 5 about not lusting and went out and castrated themselves. I don't recommend that for you, nor do I recommend that for myself. There are others, as Roman Catholicism began to develop and dominate the world from about 500 A.D. to about 1500, the Catholic Church began to counsel couples not to be together on holy days. By the time it was all said and done, they had 183 holy days in a 365-day year, basically telling couples not to be intimate half of the year on account of holy days that were simply just man-made rules. If you want the biblical ethic, Paul says that husbands and wives, 1 Corinthians 7, should come together regularly and come together in intimacy, in marriage, because it is one way that they cement their oneness and stay close to one another. And he says, if you don't for, if you decide to not be together for a time, do that by agreement, dedicate yourself to prayer and fasting, and come back together quickly, lest the devil tempt you. Those are not my words. Those are Paul's words. And he says that the wife's body does not belong to her, but to the husband. And the husband's body doesn't belong to him, but to the wife. And that we have a responsibility one to another to meet our needs in this area. It is always wrong for a spouse to hold sexual intimacy over a spouse's head. Don't do that. It's a mistake. Now, if you have other issues, then get help with those issues. Now, the bedroom will suffer when your relationship obviously is not right. Your oneness will be affected at every level. And uh, Jesus addresses some of these issues in the book of Matthew. So I'm going to turn you to the book of Matthew. We're going to be turning to a few passages. Matthew chapter 19. Now, many in the homosexual community have said that Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexuality. And for that matter, he did not address bestiality, Matthew chapter 19, the first gospel. The reason that Jesus didn't address homosexuality specifically in his earthly ministry is because most of his sermons were to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience that Jesus addressed would have known that Leviticus condemns homosexual behavior with the death penalty. Uh, I, I don't think that it was as big of a deal in Israel as it was in the Gentile world. That's why when Paul writes in Romans and 1 Corinthians, he addresses these things more specifically because of his audience. Remember in Rome, if you watch the movie Gladiator, at one point they, they ask uh, you know, the gladiator, what do you want? Do you want a girl? Do you want a boy? Do you want a, a male or a female kind of thing? Because in the Roman world, there was all this lewd conduct going on. The Jews knew the Torah, so they didn't need a lot of instruction from Jesus in terms of what, what was right and wrong in God's eyes. That's why Jesus doesn't specifically address it. But I will say it doesn't let you off the hook because the whole Bible comes from the living word, Jesus himself. All scripture is inspired by God. Amen. But here's what Jesus did say. He was addressed by the Pharisees in Matthew 19 about the issue of divorce. They came, 19.3 of Matthew, testing him as they often did. They, were always, they always regretted it. And they said, is it lawful, Matthew 19.3, for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning uh, an appeal now to Genesis, made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. He said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, Jesus talking now, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
In two back-to-back verses, Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27 in verse 4 and Genesis 2.24 in verse 5. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And here it is. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man come into that oneness, those vows that have been taken, and be a third party dividing that couple. Let no one come in and break up what God joins together as one. And they said to him, seven. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Jesus' appeal for the sexual ethic in Scripture is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. By the way, he did not think they were mythical creations of poetry. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve, a literal beginning, a literal first couple made in the image of God, and that they were to come together. And if Jesus said that, that's what I'm going to believe. And he said, if any third party gets involved, Though polygamy obviously happened in the Old Testament, God seems to allow some wiggle room there. I don't know all the reasons why, but I will tell you, whenever someone got involved in a polygamous relationship, it ended really bad. It went really south really fast. And so here's what he says. Pick up the account. And I say to you, nine, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits, here's our topic, Adultery. The disciple said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry, right? <laughs> and he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Basically, if your heart is open to the word of God, this will not be hard to figure out. Jesus Christ lays down the biblical ethic you leave your parents, you cleave to your wife or your husband, and the two of you are close and you celebrate your monogamous heterosexual relationship. I got to qualify everything as I say these things. And you are true to one another, and it is a positive thing. God thought it up. God created male and female. He designed Adam with the specific parts and breathed the breath of life. Into him, he took one of his ribs and he built, literally, he designed Eve to fit with Adam. And it is not hard to figure out that God designed male and female to be together. One of the uh, offsprings of that is offspring, right? They come together and babies are born, etc. But that's not the only reason. It is for marital closeness and marital love. And what I'd like to do is I'm giving you a little bit of the negative. I want to give you some of the positive and take you to a few other passages. We're going to go to wisdom literature now in Proverbs. So locate the Psalms and then go to your right and you're going to come to the book of Proverbs. It is packed with wisdom. It addresses some of these issues. This is uh, fatherly wisdom to a son, namely Solomon uh, to his son. And Solomon made a lot of mistakes in this area. Proverbs 5.15 encourages the following. And as you turn there, just know that the biblical view is that sex is not merely procreational. Quoting now Philip Riken, it is also relational and recreational. Sex is for love, for pleasure, and for joy. Proverbs 5.15 says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. 
He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. It does us no good in the church to not talk to people about issues that are everywhere in the culture and on everybody's mind. The Bible has all kinds of wisdom in this area. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 6. Look at verse 23. Proverbs 6, 23. It says, The commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. 625. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. For on account of the harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, one who commits adultery. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy himself who does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be content, though you give him, you give many gifts. You try to pay him off. You say, I'm so sorry. A jealous husband, a jealous and wounded wife, there's often much more that goes with that, including violence, and sometimes people killing other people because they have been robbed of something very precious. When trust is broken and the covenant is broken and so forth. Now, on the positive side, I want to tell you that there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to passionate love. Do you all know what the book of the Bible devoted to passionate love is called? Thank you. It's called the Song of Solomon. Now, it's in the wisdom literature. Going to your right, you're going to move from Proverbs. Keep turning with me. You're going to pass up Ecclesiastes, and you're going to get to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, kind of a duet between two lovers here. And uh, it, this is a celebration of sexual love. And let me just say that I understand that this is not necessarily the, the most common messages that we do here, but if it embarrasses you that there's some kind of you know, sexual, erotic stuff in the Bible... It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and uh, if you're more prudish than God, you might want to just check yourself, you know. If you're like, oh, God, really? You know, check yourself. Anyway, <laughs> Song of Solomon 1.1. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance, fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder, no wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let us hurry. I'm reading from the NIV. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Skip over to Song, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9. I'm just going to give you a few, few snapshots. You can read this on your own later. This is the New American Standard from Song 4, verse 9. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You've made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, verse 10, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices? Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Some of you ladies are going to get some cards with some of this stuff in there. I can just see it coming. Anyway, <laughs> Song of Solomon 5, verse 2. I slept, NIV, my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, 
my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I know you can't take much more, so that's where I will leave it. (laughs) Some of you didn't know this was in the Bible. But what this does is tell tell you something. The Bible celebrates intimate love within marriage. Romance. Speaking love language. Speaking romantically to one another. Telling each other that you're beautiful and lovely and important to me and all of these things. And God is the one that made it up. It is so sad to me to see how the devil has soiled something that God made to be beautiful. That really is heartbreaking. But God made it to be beautiful, and many of you have been robbed of the beauty of it because of the soiling of it in your past. And I understand that. Many of you come from abuse and seeing distortions of this that make you very uncomfortable. And I get it. And I will tell you that you're just going to have to try to work through this with God's heart and God's grace. And I will tell you that anybody who truly loves you will be patient with you. There's going to be different seasons of life, different ways that we love one another and give ourselves for one another and sacrifice for one another. This is, this is something that within the context of love, we will be patient with one another. We will defer to one another. We will try to be there for one another. We need to protect our marriages from adultery. And one of the ways we do that is by filling the love tank of our spouse. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage should be honored by all NIV. Let the marriage bed be precious to all of you. And let the marriage bed be kept pure, NIV, Hebrews 13.4, for fornicators or the sexually immoral and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13, verse 4. We've looked at the negative. We've looked at the positive. And now I want to take you to the inside-outside rule of every commandment. This is in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's turn there together. Let me explain the inside-outside rule. The outside rule of the command is quite evident. The outside rule has to do with the, the actual act of breaking a commandment. The inside rule has to do with your heart. Jesus got to the depth of the law when he said the following. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already, where? In his heart. Now, this doesn't apply just to the male, but it seems to be more of a male problem. Males are very visual. We're starting a new man ministry this coming Tuesday here. I think we have maybe 20 plus guys signed up already. And this this new man ministry is to address some of these issues and teach you some of the tools about how you can deal with the lust issue because it is very prevalent. And guys just seem uh, probably more than women to struggle in this area of being very visual and, you know, obviously struggling with lust. Let me explain some of the language here. When Jesus uses the word look, he's not talking about a glance. He's talking about a gaze. There is a difference. If you're driving down the freeway and you see a billboard or you're in the grocery line and there's a magazine cover or a commercial or whatever, there's a difference between a glance, like unavoidable, and a gaze. There's also a difference between the appreciation of beauty and lust. You are not going to walk for the rest of your life with your head down. You're going to run into all kinds of different things if you do that. And I heard a pastor say the following, and I think it was wise. He said, if you see someone attractive, and there are many attractive people in the world, just take it up to God and say, good job, God, (laughs) and move on. (laughs) All right? That'll get God involved with it, and hopefully you won't cross the line. Good job, God. Right? I will tell you that that pastor has since fallen. But I still think his advice is really good, so I had to qualify that. Jesus is not talking about the appreciation of beauty. He is talking about a look where you stare at someone 
repeatedly gazing at them for the purpose of lusting. The idea of the language here is that you begin to imagine the sexual possibilities as you gaze and gawk at this person. That's what's going on. It's not, boy, he's really handsome. Gee, she's really pretty, and you move on. It's the gazing with the intent of imagining the sexual possibilities. And it is not hard to figure out what the line is, brothers and sisters. We know it in our hearts when we've done it. Someone once said, you know, can you really define adultery, taking all these things into consideration? And a man responded, yeah, adultery is however my wife defines what adultery is. So there is an adultery of the heart, and there is a way to protect your heart and order your life in such a way where you don't go there. You have no business flirting with another person's spouse. You have no business creating intimacy with another person's spouse because that is the doorway to the actual act. The act is always preceded by issues of the heart. We begin to run it around in our minds. And sometimes what happens is we get, you know, the attention of somebody or a compliment from somebody. And all of a sudden, you know, you're down the road and you become like a house of cards and, and you get yourself in trouble. And that is where you need to call out to God and maybe, you know, get someone who knows you well and you can be accountable to. And I will tell you, don't go there. Because whenever you go there, there is going to be damage. It's not irreparable damage, but it is damage nonetheless. And it's something that you can save yourself a lot of heartache if you just don't go there. Jesus says, giving us some advice. These are, this is hyperbole. Extreme language to make the point. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. It's better for you that... One of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's not me talking. That's Jesus, right? He says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he gets into the idea of vows. This, God does not take this stuff lightly. When you make a vow, he expects you to keep your vow. There are some exceptions. There are some possibilities for divorce that God allows. But there are some pretty narrow things. For the rest of it, he tells you, be true to your covenant. Be true to your oath. You love the person that God has given you, and you love them well. And it's going to be work. And it is challenge at times. And marriage is the school of discipleship. And God will teach you to love somebody through thick and thin, ups and downs, when they can give you everything you need and when they can't. And that's what agape love is all about. Amen? It's a good time for a louder amen. amen. This is what the Lord says. And it is my duty to obey him. And so Jesus says, look, if there are things happening, let me just comment for a moment. I'm going to state the obvious as you turn to John chapter 8. Let me state the obvious. The pornography industry has destroyed much of our world. The whole industry is built on a lie. It is a false world. If the girls in those videos tell you that they like what they're doing, it's because they've been taking enough drugs where they can actually swallow some saliva and actually get the words out. They hate it. They've become an object. It is a false world. It's a lie. Some of the people that are in those movies are actually being sex trafficked. So if you partake in it, some of those people are there against their will. This is what we're finding out in the research with sex trafficking. So you're, you're basically, you know, helping that along. And here's what's happened. In, back in the day, I'm just going to be blunt with you and real because here we are. we got to be blunt and real. Back in the day, you could go into a video store and there was a 
kind of a back area where you, there was a curtain and there were adult videos and you had, to, you had to do the walk of shame to rent one of those things. Or you could go into a convenience store and buy a pornographic uh, magazine. And you could partake of those images. And, and those of you who have, who have done this know that those images are hard to ever get out of your head. But here's another thing. In the computer world of the internet, the images are inexhaustible. They never run out. You can always find something new. The rabbit hole never ends. Whereas a magazine, you could, you could see it and see it again and again. But at some point, you know, those images might become old to you. Well, in the computer internet world, they never end. They keep coming and coming and coming. And you, if you get caught in that world, you will never be satisfied. There'll just be more and more and more that you got to partake in. And there is a way out, brothers and sisters. There's a way out through Jesus Christ. He always provides a way of escape. And if you're there and you're entangled in that web, get out now. And there are the new man ministry and there are many of us who can talk to you about that. And, and I will just tell you this, and I, and I want to be clear. I am not preaching down to any of you. I am the chief of sinners. I come from a background where I didn't do things God's way. And if my wife came up here, we would both tell you, and many of you know our testimony, we got saved very early uh, in our relationship and got married as we had both become believers. So we've, we've seen each other on both sides of this. So we have a heart for people who are going through this. And if you come and talk to me or you talk to my bride or any one of us, we're not going to condemn anybody. That's not why we're here. We've been saved by the good news of the gospel. That's what this last story is about. But I will just tell you, the pornography industry has done so much damage to people. It's, it's amazing. But there's a way out. You can have it in your rearview mirror. His, here's John 8. We're, we're going to close our time together with this story. Jesus, verse, eight, verse 1, John 8, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. The scribes and the Pharisees, John 8, 3, brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now, they were saying this, testing him. Now, whatever was going on behind the scenes, they have found this woman caught in the very act of being with someone who was not her spouse and probably he cheating on his spouse. We don't know where the man is. The man was just accountable in the Torah as the woman. Where is he? Some people say he was simply a plant, that he was just used and they, they manipulated the whole scene. I heard a recent suggestion that is new to me that maybe the man's already been stoned and killed. That intensifies the scene, does it not? Because the woman is now facing her situation. We don't know if the Jews really could carry out capital punishment, but uh, anyway, I just leave that to you. So here's the woman. She's been torn out of this you know, situation where she's in that very act. She's in front of the judge of the world, the king of all kings, Jesus knows they're not there to condemn her. They're there to condemn him. They're not there to accuse her. They're there, there to accuse him so that they might have grounds of accusation, middle of six. So Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. Now they couldn't wait for his response. The law of Moses says this. Now they got to be thinking, now if he says stone her, the friend of tax gatherers and sinners is going to have his reputation ruined. He's the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Come here, Jesus. Oh, no, he's not. He just told them to stone that woman caught in the act of adultery. That's gone. If he says kill her, he's upholding the law of Moses. If he says no, don't stone her, now he's defying the Torah. Clearly, the law of God says to stone her. I could take you to Old Testament verses that would bear that out. What a dilemma. What would Jesus do? Come on, and the language is this. What do you say? What do you say? We want to know, teacher. What do you say? <laughs> and he's writing in the ground. What's he writing? The Greek allows for figures like drawing crosses. It allows for writing like 
You know, the finger of God wrote the original commandments. Maybe he's writing all ten of the commandments. Maybe he's writing commandment number seven. Maybe he's writing the one about bearing false witness because you're all a bunch of liars. I don't know. Maybe he's writing their individual names and their sins. Maybe he's writing a verse from Jeremiah that says that those who basically rebel against God will be written in the earth. There's a lot of possibilities. We don't know for sure, but he's writing, and it bugs them. And so he, he, it says, when they persisted in asking him, Jesus, what do you say? Jesus! He straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. You can imagine the people holding the rocks and the woman just waiting for the first blow, maybe imagining her head bleeding or her teeth being knocked out and, and the pain that she would suffer, maybe cowering down. And Jesus says, okay. And the younger would look to the elders to lead the way in this community situation. And so maybe the younger ones looked at the oldest guy in the crowd. All right, he'll start the thing and then we'll finish it. But from the oldest to the youngest, stones, rocks began to drop into the ground. Because when he stooped in the ground, he wrote again. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, verse 9, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. Rocks fell and one by one, in, in a processional, if you will, left. And it was the woman and Jesus and perhaps some others who had been listening to his teaching. And there she was in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Do no one condemn you? And she said, probably looking around, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. But let's not miss this part. Go from now on and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Two things I want to tell you as we wrap up. Number one, the one who didn't condemn her was about to be condemned on his own cross. The one who told her, I don't condemn you, was about to take the condemnation that we deserve. For there's no condemnation to those, Romans 8, 1, who are in Christ Jesus. He would take the blows. He would be treated as though he'd committed murder, adultery, and broken every one of the Ten Commandments. And he took the accusations of those commandments, nailing them to the cross, and giving us peace through the blood of his cross. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. The one that didn't condemn her was about to be condemned and accursed on the cross. And that is the good news that we preach for people who have sinned in their hearts, sinned with their actions. God forgives sin in Jesus Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. Amen? Good news that we have to preach. But there's a second thing. He tells her, Go and leave your life of sin. I want you to imagine afterwards. We all imagine the scene and we're familiar with it. So the woman walks away. But she just got caught in the act of adultery. Let's just say that that's her issue. She's got an issue with guys and, and being true and waiting for marriage or whatever it may be. What does she do now? How do you leave your life of sin? I'm sure you've asked that before. Let's try to answer that question. Number one, Jesus says in the next verse that he's the light of the world. He says, he who follows me, look at 8.12 of John, will not walk in darkness. What will you have? You'll have the light of life. If you want to leave your life of sin, walk with Jesus in the light of his word and in the power of his spirit. Number one. Number two, Jesus calls upon every disciple to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Amen? To follow Christ means self-denial. Now, not across the board. It just means doing things God's way. That means to deny your pleasures that do not honor God and let them be crucified or nailed to the cross. Follow him in the light. Deny yourself. Here's number three. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. Three times he said, Lord, let this thorn depart from me. He prayed three times, the great apostle Paul. Now, many of us, when we have a besetting sin, this is normally what we do. I've heard a lot of people say it. Maybe you've said it. Lord, if you would just take that desire away from me, then I wouldn't do it anymore. If you would just remove that uh, 
proclivity I have to, to fall to that thing, to look, to do this, to do that. Just take it away and then I won't do it anymore. And the great apostle Paul says, remove it from me. And Jesus' response is to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Now here's what I take from that. Sometimes God takes the desire away, but in many cases, what he's going to ask of you is that every time from now on that you're tempted to do that thing, you lean into his grace. And his grace, please hear me, will be sufficient for you. He will provide a way of escape that you may stand up under that temptation and find victory. More times than not, he is not going to take the desire away. He's going to ask you to change by realizing the power of his grace every time you're tempted. And I bet you <laughs> that when you leave here today, having heard this sermon, that you're going to be tempted in some of the areas that we have talked about. By the time the week's over, how many of you would bet on that? Oh yeah, it's going to happen, right? And a way of escape will be there for you. A great high priest in heaven, whoever lives to intercede for his people, will pour out uh, helping grace for those who know him. He will stabilize you in the storm. He will give you the strength that you need. Every time you turn to him in a moment of temptation, his grace will be sufficient. This is how you find victory. The more you surround yourself with the things of God, the more you will be able to stand against the wiles of the world and the evil one. Oh, Father, help us. I know that these are uh, some heavy things, but very important things. And in one command, thou shalt not commit adultery, you have given us a whole lot. But the positive side is that we can enjoy a wonderful, intimate relationship with a spouse, building intimacy and trust for the rest of our lives. Thank you for that, Father. For those who are single or those who have gone through some bumps and bruises in these areas, you don't condemn them. In fact, in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. So I pray that anyone who's in Christ would not feel condemned but I also pray that if anyone is continuing in a life of sin that is not, you know, struggling with temptation and that kind of stuff, but unrepentant, open sin, I pray that they would repent of it. Because you say to that woman, I don't condemn you, but leave your lifestyle of sin. Leave it behind you. And I pray, Father, as we look at the inside-outside rules about lust. We know we struggle to a certain degree, all of us, Lord. We want to lay that at the foot of the cross. And then some of the principles about how we overcome, walking in the light, crucifying the flesh, denying ourselves, and knowing your grace is sufficient, that you're always going to give us grace. Whenever we ask, you will give it. You'll give us more than we need. Help us to call upon you more when we're feeling vulnerable and weak. That's usually when the, the enemy preys on us. Help us to find new ways to be aware and then to dive into the deep end of your grace to find that it is more than sufficient in every moment of life. Now, if you've been confused on some of these issues or perhaps fallen to some of these, there's hope for you. In the gospel, it's good news. Jesus Christ took the punishment that we deserve. If you've not met him with your head and heart bowed, this would be a great time to just say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Save me. Thank you that at the cross you took my condemnation as though you had broken the commandments that I've broken. I trust in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Please apply them to my life. I repent of my sin. I want to know what it means to serve you, to follow you all the days of my life. Maybe you've been a prodigal and maybe the world's confused you with some of these issues and you just haven't known what to believe. I pray that the Lord would steady you and that you would anchor yourself in, in the revelation that God has revealed despite 
which way the winds of the world blow, and they're going to shift and change all the time. And then forever, every believer here, Father, every uh, married couple, every one of those who are with us who are single or, or widowed, may your grace be sufficient. Where there's need for healing from the past, from sins that we've committed against each other, where there's been brokenness and a, a breaking of trust and hurts and wounds, you're the ultimate healer. Would you heal us from the inside out? Would you teach us to walk in your ways, to become more like you when we're interacting with folks, especially the ones that we love the most? May your grace pour over this room and all those who are watching or will watch this later. Because I know that there's some rawness that can happen as a result of these topics. But may you be a healing balm where healing is needed, Lord. Restore. Restore to folks the years that the locust has eaten. Do your mighty work, Father. Only you can do it, but we know you are faithful. So we lay all these things before you in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. The front's going to be available to you for prayer.